Sounds of our shovels. Welcome to the first installment of Savage Hippie, Sounds of Mars Shabaloosh. Um, if you are too lazy to read the description of the episode, I'm interviewing Mark the Shark Shelton, guitarist, singer, and songwriter for legendary cult heavy metal band Manila Road. Uh, they've been active since 1977, and they've put out quite an extensive body of work. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. How are you, man? Fantastic. Right out the gate. Why are you Mark the Shark, Shelton? Not sharpshooter, not something else? Like, what is the, what's the deal with that? Because I know you guys, I know every member of Manila Road now has a nickname. Is it just something that's just like cool? Or is it, is there like something related to it? Well, I'm, I'm glad it's a cool nickname, at least. We'd have to kill you if we really told you. <laughs> oh, so there's, there's actual like little, little, um, stories behind it that you can't actually give out to the public. Well, no. Uh, actually, uh, it was Randy Fox and the guys in Stygian Shore, another band from the area here back then, that uh, gave me the nickname. Uh, they had this little game they played with uh, taking your name like Mark Shelton and then reversing the first syllable of each name, so it turned into Shark Melton. And for some reason, the shark stuck with everybody Everybody just started calling me that, and before you knew it, by 1983, it was Mark the Shark Shelton. You guys started in 1977 in Wichita, Kansas. When people think of heavy metal, they don't really think of Wichita, Kansas, so how did you yeah, get that signal? I wouldn't think of it in Wichita, Kansas, either. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the first concerts I ever went to was Black Sabbath on their Paranoid Tour, and it just uh, it totally bowled me over, man. I was just totally enthralled in how heavy and and dark and encompassing the music was and uh it was you know pretty much on from there for me uh that's how i got into the really heavy stuff there really wasn't much in the way of uh, heavy metal music when i was in high school it was just hard rock acid rock stuff like that and of course we had bands like rush and early Jewish priest and stuff eventually. And Did you hear Rock and Roll in 74? Because I know that was released on a tiny little label called Gull. I didn't actually hear about Jewish Priest until they put out Sin After Sin, which was their first uh, actual domestic release in America on uh, CBS, I believe. And uh, that was when I first heard of them. Of course, as soon as I found out they had other releases out, I, I think I made a trip up to Sight and Sound in Salina or someplace like that. And, which was one of the specialty stores back in those days. And I managed to find all of the other, you know, albums that they had out, like Rock and Roll and Sad Rings and Destiny, great stuff. And, uh, and of course, when Staying Class came out, that just knocked me for a loop, too. I thought it was the greatest thing since, you know, bread, basically. I don't know how you classify because I know that, you know, being younger, we, we then read back on how the critics went and defined these movements. But did you call it the new wave of British heavy metal? Like, did you put on like a Ted Nugent record and then Priest and kind of just like, eh, yeah, they're both good rock albums? Or were you like, man, this is like <laughs> the new thing? Uh, Priest was like the new thing for me. So it was a new wave of something for me and the guys around me at the time. But uh, we didn't call it the new wave of British heavy metal at that point, I don't think, over here. I think that moniker got instilled onto it a little later. And we just considered it really great, heavy, you know, hard rock music that was obviously under the new moniker of heavy metal music at that time. Uh, I was already, you know, totally infatuated with epic, artistic, heavy stuff anyway. Like, you know, early Rush uh, is probably my best example because, you know, things like 2112, uh, Caress of Steel, Fly By Night, they're all just totally classic, heavy, epic rock albums for me. And what I would consider pretty much in a lot of ways heavy metal music, too. Uh, it's just that, you know, as the times have grown and the music genres have grown, you've got so many different versions of heavy metal now that obviously you just keep on, we just keep on creating genre after genre and to explain this new style of fused music of this and that combined together and it makes a new genre you know or whatever 
but I don't think we thought of it as a new wave of British heavy metal. I mean, obviously there was an onslaught of British bands that were really making an impact at the time. Jesus Priest, Saxon, you know, was pretty impactful for us over here, especially their Wheels of Steel album. And Iron Maiden, of course, you know, was a big impact on us too. I mean, we, we loved all this stuff and it was pretty much a new and fresh sound for, for all of us. But, you know, it's not to say that that was the only things that were happening that we were enticed by there was an awful lot of american stuff and stuff from other countries too i mean i was just as in you know i was just as impressed with bands like trust from france and you know scorpions uh, right yeah, uh, Scorpions uh, eventually accept as well. You know, my what I consider is the the German version of Jewish Priest. You know, and uh, I think they're all great bands. There are great bands coming out of everywhere. I was a big Heavy Load fan for a while. You know, and Wait, who was the Heavy Load? Yeah, I actually loved Heavy Load. I've I thought never they were great. And I'm actually a, a pretty big expert on like the '70s heavy rock. Who's Heavy Load? Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! You need to check them out. They're from Sweden. Uh, uh, they did several albums. I've got several in my collection, and there was just lots of bands back then that were, you know, not, oh, I have a huge album collection that's just got lots of rarities that nobody's ever heard of, I think. Well, you I mean, know? Um, were you, I mean, I'm assuming you're a Budgie fan, right? Oh, yeah, I love Budgie. Budgie and uh, Atomic Rooster, is, people laugh at me when I say Atomic Rooster, but I, I tell them, have you heard Death Walks Behind You? That yeah, is well, it's... It's a funny name, but it's a good band. <laughs> I know it's in, and they're so heavy, and you know a lot of. It seems like there's a lot of a resurgence of people getting really interested into that stuff. Did you ever run into like Bobby Liebling from Pentagram or the guys from Sirith Ungle at all during your career? I mean, did you guys ever say like, "Hey, we come from sort of the same spot, but from completely different parts of the country"? Did, did that ever occur? Uh, well, it's occurred here in the last few years. Uh, before, no. Uh, I mean, uh, Tim Baker and I had emailed each other quite a bit, uh, you know, a few years back. And uh, I was trying to convince him to, you know, get the band back together and go on tour with us. And uh, eventually, finally, uh, you know, some other people helped talk him into uh, coming back together. But uh, we've, uh, let's see, uh, we met with Tim and the guys from Kirith Ungle, uh Last just, year at yeah, the Frost and Fire. Yeah, last year at the Frost and Fire. Not this Festival year, but the year before. And uh, when we were touring the U.S. And uh, uh, we've also... We're uh, going to be playing a show with them in April uh, in Germany to keep yeah, it true. Yeah, to keep it true festival. We'll be hanging out with them and playing again. And let's see, the other band you mentioned was what? Pentagram. Oh, Pentagram. Yeah, we first ran into with him and Borisellas. Borisellas. Yeah, and Maryland Death And the Maryland Death Mess. Yeah, we've played with them twice, actually. Okay. And so uh, here in the last couple of years, you know, we've had a chance to meet with Bobby and, and you know, share the stage with him. And we haven't shared the stage with Kirith yet, but we will be with Kirith Ungle at the Keep It True Festival this uh, coming April in uh, uh, 2017. And that's in, uh, where do you say, is that in Munich, as I said? Or no, you, that's in it's in Germany. Uh, well, Munich's in Germany, obviously. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm sorry. I, it's like old, uh, where, where, uh, loud, loud Copenhagen. Yeah. But that's the old place. Oh, uh, isn't that where it is still? Yeah, it might be in Lauda. I think, I think it's in Lauda, Germany, is where it is. But it's not, it, it's, it's like a sports hall, you know, uh, uh, sort of out in the country almost. They well, that's, what they, that's what they do it out there. I mean, it, you know, we don't have those kind of festivals here. Here we have, it's somewhere in the big city and then they, they, they block out like a few blocks, you know, and then right. they, like Maryland Death Fest. And in, in Europe, they have these big open fields and you bring a tent and you sleep there for several days. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I want to do and, you know, see one of these big metal festivals and you're playing with Sir Thungle, right? Yeah, yeah, we're actually headlining the Friday of the festival and they're headlining the Saturday. So we're not actually sharing the stage on the same day, but we're going to be there to see them, of course, you know, and uh, we're, you know, we're friends with the guys anyway now. So, you know, it's, it's going to be fun, I'm sure. Yeah, it sounds super cool. Okay, so taking it back to the beginning, what is Manila Road? Like I, on the back of the Spiral Castle, the, the book on Spiral Castle, you're at Manila Road and then the Manila is a city in the Philippines. But you added an extra L to it. Is there some significance to that? Or is that I would... <laughs> and, yeah, well, uh, 
I'll tell you the story. The, the true story, you know, I've been asked, you know, where we got the name so many times. I've told about 101 different stories <laughs> just, just, just to make it fun. But the actual real story is that uh, when the first drummer, Ben Munkers, and I were uh, sitting in his kitchen, uh, and I believe we were watching Monty Python's Flying Circus on a small black and white TV, and we were drinking beer and smoking weed, and probably pretty toasted, you know, and uh, we were trying to think up of a name for the band that we were putting together, and it was him and me and Scott, and Scott's little brother, uh, Robert, eventually got involved, too, for a while, but uh, anyway, uh, we were we were just coming up with stuff, and most of the bands that we really loved at the time had uh, colors in their names, you know, like Blue Cheer, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, you know, and uh, <laughs> frigid pink, whatever. Anyway, frigid pink uh, is actually from my town. I mean, they, they oh, literally live miles from me. Oh wow, that's a trip. But uh, anyway, so that's where we started with the color thing, and, and we thought, well, we want it to be a positive thing, you know. And so we went with Manila because it, it was sort of white, but it wasn't perfectly white because you know we're we're people, so we can't be perfect. And and then we realized that, you know, let's let's make it so that it's easy to copyright or trademark. I mean, and so we put the extra L in there just to make it easy to trademark it. And then the road just came because we wanted it to sound like we were going somewhere. <laughs> and then basically what you're talking about is two metalheads that are basically, you know, drunk and high coming up with the name of band. And for some reason, Manila Road is what we came up with. And... You know, only the gods know why we've stuck with it all these years. <laughs> and it's, it's, it is a cool name. Uh, the logo is looks like Hebrew. It, were you just looking at Hebrew writing and you're like, that looks cool? Or was... It was more of a, it just looks really cool. And I knew it was antiquated, you know, as far as the font style. Uh, I think when I chose it out of the fonts, I think it actually said profit uh, for the font. And... Uh, and here lately, when I've looked it up, I've seen it as the font name is King's something or other, or King's font or whatever. And uh, I think I think it was because it said profit on it and it looked cool to me, but I, I had no idea right off the bat that it was a break. Uh, I did realize, you know, very soon after that it was done in a break writing style or a break font. But uh, at that point, I didn't really care. Just it looked cool. <laughs> yeah, it looks cool. Okay, so um, what's interesting is that when people think of independent artists, they think like the the, the do-it-yourself movement. They usually think of punk rock and hardcore punk, but you guys put out your first album, Invasion, completely on your own. And First three. Yeah, the, actually, the first three were com completely on our own. There's six songs on that one, and then you recorded another five for the radio station. That came slightly before. Were you ever going to put those out? Because that came out 30 years later, uh, the, the After Midnight Live. And those yeah, are great no, songs you've got. I mean, to, to me, when I hear them, they kind of sound like spacey, Blue Oyster Cult-ish, up-tempo rock. Yes, yeah, so there's another band that was on the verge of being a metal band as well. <laughs> Were you ever going to release those? Herman Hill is a terrific song, Chromophobia. These are, these are great songs. Was a Pentacle of Truth. Uh, these are fantastic. Yeah, Pentacle of Truth, yeah. Uh, and that's that's funny. See, Pinnacle of Truth. I'm 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 absolutely positive of this, but I made up the words to that song while we were doing that show. Uh, <laughs> there were no set lyrics to that yet. It was a very new song to us at the moment, and uh, just sort of a rock and roll jam that we did. And uh, yeah, there was actually a whole other tape of that show. The first part of the show was. Uh, still totally missing, and I doubt if we'll ever find it. We were lucky to find that that copy of the tape. It was actually derived from a, a cassette tape, and uh, I'm sure it's the only recording that was that was left to be had of that uh, session. But and, those but, songs on the first half, those were all from Invasion, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I think everything on the first tape that we didn't have were songs that were from Invasion, like The Empire and Dream Goes On, Cat and Mouse, stuff like that. And uh, we were sort of lucky that the tape that did survive was all the stuff that never made it to an album, so that it was original material that we were presenting on the After Midnight Live project. And you know, 
Were you ever planning on recording those? Or, I mean, because I know that you re- you said in an interview that you like, or the latest thing you make is what you like the most, which is, is fine oh, for artists right. because you, you, you know, it's the newest thing you did. Um, were you ever going to go back and say, okay, we got these songs and these songs and then put them out? Or was that pretty much going to get lost to time? No, I had a habit of just moving on, uh, to tell you the truth back then. And that, uh, that philosophy of just moving on from song to song to song stuck with me for quite a while. And, uh, I was never one that was really big on going back and doing our old, what you would call hits now until the last several years when I, uh, excuse me, when I finally realized that, okay, I've got bands that, you know, when I, you know, first heard them or whatever, I'm more enthralled even still to this day with their early stuff and not as much their new stuff. So it made sense to me that everybody could be that way with my music as well. And, that you know, obviously, especially with Manila Road, our sound and our style has always been changing, at least to some degree. And uh, I can't really think of any album that we've ever done that you can point at another album and say, this album sounds just like that album. You know, because of that move-on philosophy that I've always had, you know, and always wanting to experiment with something new and different, I have a feeling that it's, like, virtually impossible for us to go back or for me to go back and actually write an album. Like, if I even sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write an album just like Crystal Logic again, I'm not sure I could do it, to tell you the truth. It's... Uh, the music that comes out of me is always what's happening to me at the moment and what's, you know, what it is that my head's into at that moment and not necessarily uh, what my head was into 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And so, uh, uh, you know, now I have, uh, Rick Fisher and I have done a project here race, recently uh, that we're going to call, uh, we're going to call the band Riddle Master. And, uh, the album's already recorded. We're, you know, uh, negotiating a deal right now. And uh, <clears throat> I have a feeling that, you know, when I go back and listen to this, this sounds a lot more like older Manila Road in a lot of respects because, uh, uh, because well, I think part of it was due to the fact that Rick and I really wanted to see what would have possibly been if we were still together now, maybe, you know, with him drumming and, and uh, approaching it in that older older vein of stuff that he actually liked because part of the reason that Rick left the band uh, was because Scott and I were wanting to get a lot faster and heavier with the music. We wanted to be more of a metal band, and he wanted to be more of a space rock type band. Well, I was going to ask about that. I have a couple questions about that, actually. One, sure. uh, yeah, I noticed with Randy Thrasher Fox, you got, well, first of all, Crystal Logic is still, that's a metal record. I mean, that's, you know, that's a to the bone up tempo metal record, but then with with Randy Thrasher Fox, you've got songs where it's like you know, like White Chapel is just super like yeah. it was great because one thing I do you guys are really good at is arrangement. It's always gonna sound like that Manila Road sound no matter what style you choose, because you're always gonna have that the 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 way that you guys put the songs together. Sure. Cause I know that you guys wanted to get a major label deal like with Colum- like is that is that a good assumption? You didn't want to just be on independent labels, is that right? Well, we, uh, you know, I was always open for a big deal, a big major label deal. Uh, part of my problem was I was sort of an egotist and uh, <laughs> it didn't want to let go of much of the control of, uh, you know, what you let go of when you signed to a major label. Well, I did have a couple of offers. I wouldn't call it major label offers, but I had an offer from uh, Shrapnel Records when we put Playing Metal Systems out. I had traveled out to California and met with the owner of the label, Mike Barney. And didn't that guy and, say, like, I don't like your record, make another one? Yeah, that was... That, I, I, read, I read you say that, and, and, and I got annoyed that someone would... I mean, because you said, you said, you know, I was an egotist, but that's not being an egotist. If someone said, make make a better record than the one you already made, I'd punch him in the face. Well, <laughs> he said, you're like... <laughs> it, it was sort of funny. I'm not even sure I was, I was here and make a better record from him. Uh, I think what I was hearing was that, uh, see, what I had taken to him was the, the freshly done mix of uh, Crystal Logic. And he listened to it all, and he told me that he really didn't like much of it. Uh, he thought the first, the intro was really cool, the prologue. He, he thought that was great, and then after that, it was shit. And, <laughs> wow, that's, was, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. I, you know what I mean? I, I yeah. just could not imagine just saying, yeah, this record sucks. I'd be like, 
Yeah, I'll take it. Well, yeah, and then and then he turned around and he basically told me that I'll give you a deal right now. We'll work out the deal. We'll sign a contract right now if you'll just guarantee to give me ten songs, an album's worth of songs that are just like flaming metal systems. And I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that. I did. It seemed at the moment, even though it was a very tempting offer because it had been a lot, a lot more money than I was making at the time. But it seemed like the quote unquote selling out thing to me. So I told him no and I walked and I kept on trying to figure out a way to get Crystallogic released, which we ended up releasing it on our own label again, you know. I was offered a chance for the band to go out to New York and to quote unquote live in a warehouse and we'll see what happens by John Zazula. Who was the owner of Megaforce Records? Yeah, yeah. You you turned that down? Is that what you or because that that yeah, was well, like, I, sorry, what? at the time at the time nobody knew who Megaforce was and uh, until Cobalt came out. Well, yeah. I mean, he didn't even have Metallica yet. I mean, he didn't have anybody yet. He was just he was just a new label getting ready to start happening. I didn't know him from anybody, and uh, there was no guarantee. It was like, yeah, pack up everything you guys have and come out here to New York, and I've got this warehouse you can jam in and sleep in, and we'll see what happens. And it just didn't seem like enough of a of an offer to uproot ourselves and move all the way to New York for, but go, go figure. It was Johnny Z, you know, as the guy that made Metallica famous. So if you had signed to Warner brothers or Columbia or, or, or Atlantic, um, it seems like bands like again, Blue Oyster Call, Black Sabbath. It seems like once they get the major label deal, they're, they're on the bus 24 seven and they're doing all these big tours and they're only influenced by the stuff that's selling millions of records. Do you think that Manila Road would have gone in the more aggressive direction with, like, mystification out of the abyss, these, like, aggressive thrash-type songs, if you had signed a major label deal early on in your career? Probably not, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, if we got a major label deal back in the day when we were a space rock band, I expect we would have probably stayed more in the vein of what we were being accomplished with. I think that's what happens to most musicians, you know, who who do make it big, you know, as far as making it big quickly. Now, the, the artists that take their time about getting there, like we did, we took a lot of time to get there. <laughs> you know, the artists that just continually strive on their own their own battlefield, you know, and not necessarily playing to the market. They're the bands that really seem to provoke a, a, a huge style of their own and end up being more unique than most other bands. And I think a lot of, you know, it's been good and bad for us to be on our own like that all the time. Uh, it's been good because we have been able to have the freedom of doing whatever we want, but at the same time, that doing whatever we want doesn't usually make us very accessible to the common public, you know. Yeah, so you, you couldn't picture yourself recording Def Leppard's Pyromania had you been signed in 1982. I don't think so. I think we would have turned into more of a Pink Floyd you know, or a Hawkwind or something like that, you know? Oh, I'm I a think, huge Hawkwind fan, by the way. I actually yeah, see I, the similarities I, between you and Dave Brock and that you've been carrying this this for so long. Except he's a little older than I am. <laughs> yeah, because he, well, he's one decade before you guys. Because Hawkwind's first yeah. time came on 70, you guys came on 80. So that's that would make sense. Yeah, what I, what I think is amazing about Hawkwind is that it seems like nobody, especially nobody here in the U.S., realizes how big a propellant of spacey and rock, hard rock music they were in uh, the U.K. and Europe uh, back in those days, back in the real old days, even before... Uh, Pink Floyd was big, you know, they were a huge influence on, on so many other, uh, artists that eventually did come into prominence. And, uh, I think it's amazing that they're, they're, you know, an extremely under, underrated and overlooked band as far as I'm concerned, uh, especially considering how much material they put out over the years. Kind of like you guys. I mean, it's, it's a similar yeah, situation. To me, you play different music, but it's a similar situation. Yeah, they put out more than we have. They, <laughs> they, were, on, they were on a total rock out and record anything and everything spree. Uh, but then it's a little easier when you're just jamming on the same four <laughs> four progressions or whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, because, again, like I said earlier, like you have a song on, uh, on, on uh, Gates of Fire that is 
the fall of Ilium and it's 15 minutes long, but you wouldn't know that. I mean, if you're just listening to it, I wouldn't even think it's 15 minutes long. I mean, it's just, it's arranged so well. I mean, I, you've been, tra- I know that you were trained classically. Is that correct? It is to, to a degree. I mean, I, I'm an educated musician. I did go to school. I'm not a, I'm not a master's in, in music by any means. And, uh, uh, as far as my guitar, uh, instruction, I've only had, uh, <laughs> I've only had one semester of guitar lessons at uh, Wichita State University, so I mean, you fooled, you, you could have fooled me, you know. I mean, I'm listening to these records, and you know, the the, the guitar solos are so flowing. That's fun. That's funny. Brian's sitting here, just showing me two fingers right now. You're the two finger wonder. <laughs> I've always got this thing where people say, "Well, you own this two finger style." Yeah, and it's like. Dude, do you really watch me? Because I actually use four fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever sir, works, you know. I mean, it's it's. It, I mean, the, the records are great. It's just. I'm, uh, a, I'm a very I'm a very unconventional guitar player because I pretty much taught myself how to play. But I was an educated musician. I've been educated at the piano and percussion instruments and. And singing, and singing, because that's not very yeah. typical of metal. When you think of metal, they just belt out the lyrics and kind of like, the the singer just shouts all over the, the riffs and hopefully <laughs> something comes out of it, you know, it's like, you know, and people don't really care about the singer. It's just, do you write down the music for your vocal melodies or you just sing what comes to... Well, I can, but I don't usually. We usually just commit the stuff to memory, you know, because that's how we how we do it. I mean, you got to do it that way live anyway, so every once in a while we'll have a lyric cheat sheet tuck away somewhere you know but that's because we some too many goddamn lyrics yeah yeah my brain says there are too many damn lyrics you gotta quit writing so many damn lyrics <laughs> i was actually gonna ask about lyrics now is it safe to call manila Ro- manila road hyborian metal no uh, to a degree i mean when we're doing songs like queen of black i was sure <laughs> Well, because I noticed I, that um, you guys don't sing about medieval. I mean, I don't hear I don't hear any Tolkien lyrics. I don't hear any Michael Moorcock lyrics, unless I'm mistaken, unless I missed it somewhere. You haven't missed any Tolkien or Moorcock. I do I do Howard and Lovecraft every once in a while. I've done Clive Barker with Midnight Meat Train. You know, I've done Edgar Allan Poe, obviously, with Station, and a couple other songs, like on, uh, I think, Spiral Castle, there was a song called Shadow that was... Uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's story, and also uh, Into the Maelstrom on Playground of the Dam is a Poe story. I must have an affinity for Poe, evidently. <laughs> no, that's, that's terrific. And uh, I was, I was going to ask you, one question I was going to ask you, when you got into the Robert E. Howard stuff, did you get into it through the Lancer paperbacks from the 60s and 70s, like with the Frank Frazetta painting? Yes, yes I did. Uh, actually, they were on, uh, what were they, uh, Lancer, sometimes Ace or Bantam as well uh they were coming out on all they were being reissued you know all over the place for many years and but yeah all the stuff that was edited by el sprague de camp uh i definitely was uh uh, i I was actually gonna ask you that do you think el sprague de camp ruined robert e howard when they try to put the conan stories in a chronological order or did you like those as much as the howard stuff or did you think they kind of like i get where you're going with that uh you know, I was introduced to Howard through his edited versions, and it wasn't until Del Rey just recently put out all of the unedited versions of the Howard Estate releases of all of the stories that he did, you know, that I got to read the unedited versions. I love Howard's writing. I think after years of reading both, I'd have to say that if there was anybody that could have done the the stuff for Howard effectively, that El Sprague Camp was probably the best guy to do it because he had a very, very good understanding of Howard and how he wrote. And even when he inserted little things that he edited in there, he was pretty good about still sticking to the Howard style, I think. So I think he did a good job. I, here, Brian. Hello, buddy. I'm here with you. It's cool. No <laughs> you became the singer of Manila Road, but you're not the singer on everything. What was the story with that? Because I know that Manila Road went through like an eight or nine year period of inactivity and then Atlantis Rising, you were on that. Well, I guess what, you the, the singer on some of the songs and not all the songs? I mean, I try to hear the difference between the two voices. It's It started back, um, like, a, like you said, in 2000 um, when I got on board with singing. Um, it was basically 
uh, to help out with the live settings um, because uh, you know doing a live show it takes a, a lot of taxing on your voices and in order to do a tour you know you have to really uh, pay attention to what you're doing but um, you know Mark uh, got to the point where his chronic laryngitis would flare up uh, during live shows late 80s and early 90s he really hurt his vocal cords and um, trying to you know do an album while he was sick and um, um, and then after that, uh, it just, you know, eventually it, it comes and goes, you know, and, um, it's gotten a lot better, um, since the two thousands when I came on, cause I, I took a little bit of the duties off of him, uh, to just kind of give him a break. So we, you know, keep the band going and keep playing, uh, live shows. Cause you know, really that's what we're about. We want to get out there to the fans and, and play for them. Because well, uh, you, you sing in this, I mean, I'm assuming you try to sing in his style. Is that- well, I try to stay to the to the logist of it. Yeah, that you're right, but uh, you know, and it's gotten more and more in the, in the as the years goes on that I've sort of created my own style, sort of using the older style too. But you know, he kind of lets me, you know, do what I need to do in the in the studio, and and if it sounds great, you know, awesome, we keep it. If I think you know, if I think he can sing it better, I let him sing it. And that's how we kind of go and approach things in the studio. When he writes things, uh, he, he tends to, you know, write things a little more. Uh, he knows what things are easier for me to do. And, and um, um, so he, he keeps that in mind when he does the writing stuff. So, and that's how, that's how we come about it. But When you guys uh, here, do songs from Out of the Abyss, who does the... Oh, that that's all Mark back then, because... <laughs> That's that's pre that's way pre my my. No, times. no, I know, but you perform those songs live. Uh, some some things, but um, uh, I think the only song we're doing off of that album, um, on this uh, first short tour with uh Randy Fox that we're gonna do, uh, is like War in Heaven, I believe. Uh, we're gonna do that one and uh, do some other things too. But you know, I try to stay away. From you know, I'm 50 years old, and, and the high falsetto screams, I try to pick and choose my times to use it. So <laughs> Yeah, because your voice uh, can just go snap. Oh, it, it can snap on you in a, in a heartbeat, and you just, it, it's gone, you know, and it it's, takes a while to uh, make it heal and come back strong. So I just try to um, stay in the pocket when I'm out on tour and, and um, you know, not get too aggressive, but have a good time and, and everybody usually comes up and enjoys the show, so it's that's that's the plus side for me. So yeah, that's awesome. But, oh wait, so is Mark still there? Or no, I'm not. I'm not here, man. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about the the lyrics to a couple other songs because oh. um, on Mystification, you made a joke about how even though you enjoy Edgar Allan Poe, the mysterious side of horror, you still like a good bloodbath. And later on Playground of the Damned, you have this song called Grindhouse. Uh, were you into that? Were you like in the seventies? You go to see a lot of these gory Grindhouse films. Oh yeah, <laughs> didn't you? Or wait a minute, maybe you weren't. No, I'm, I'm a millennial. Probably you're a millennial. Years. Yeah. I'm, that means you're what? You're you're in your early thirties or yep. something like yeah, that. Uh, thirty-two. Okay. Yeah, our new bass player Phil Ross, he's thirty-two. So you guys are right in the same spectrum there, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I love the Grindhouse movies. So uh, we we thrived on them. We used to go to all the drive-in theaters all the time back when they had drive-ins, you know. And well, actually, we still have drive-in here. Do you have a drive-in theater where you're at? Eh, kind of. I mean, we have a few revival theaters that lose. Money. Uh, they're you, not they're not a business. You know what I mean? It's more just like for the people who have a lot of money will make something just for people to to do once a month. Oh, okay. Well, we actually still have a thriving, functional drive-in theater. Yep. In Wichita, Kansas, and then there's two of them side by side, two big screens side by side. And it used to be a really big thing here. As a matter of fact, I think there was a good, good half a dozen or more drive-in theaters here when I was growing up. And of course, so you had, you know, a plethora of uh, of choices of all sorts of different types of movies to go see at the drive-in. You had the, you know, the the R-rated stewardess movies. You had <laughs> You had the Grindhouse movies, you had all the Splatter movies, you know, and the horror stuff and the sci-fi stuff. And I love all that stuff, man. I, I was a huge, and still am, a huge movie buff, huge film buff. So what's your, uh, what's one of your favorites? My very favorite movie of all time is Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts. That's a fantastic film. I mean, I love classic special effects more than the CGI crap, because I think CGI oh. looks like a computer game. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh but that's not bad either. 
Some of it's good. It depends on how good they do their CGI. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what they can do with movies now. Everything's possible now. It's amazing. But it sort of it sort of cheapens it because it's kind. Of, well, it sort of ties back to to you guys in that you guys when you started out and for a good portion of your, of your career, you didn't have all these Pro Tools type things. So what you heard is what you get. So you had to rely on the talent of the band. Uh, I yep. think that the modern technology sort of cheapens a band's ability to really showcase their talent. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that. I actually agree with you 128 and <laughs> percent there. Yeah. Uh, oh, Brian would tell me that's not possible. I, <laughs> I agree. I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I do think uh, all of the technology makes it a little too easy to do things that are uh, too perfect to be actual musicians. Uh, I think part of the, the cool nuance to music is the human factor. So mechanical drums don't get it for me. You know, fake guitar parts don't get it for me. You know, drop down tuning is something that I don't even use. You know, I still play in standard A440. I do sincerely believe that, uh, and this may be partly why some people still think, even though our production is really immaculate nowadays, we still get ribbed for our production sometimes. And I think it's because we don't do all of that Pro Tools crap. You guys record it analog, don't you? You still record a tape. Well, no, we're actually on a digital system, but uh, we still just put mics in front of amps, you know, and crank the amps up. And we, uh, you know, we don't have triggers on drums. We use microphones on drums. It's actually a real drummer playing the drums. Can I give a shout out to my to one of my buddies, Louis Vidalment, drummer for Euphoria. He does not use your current drummer. I don't have the, the sheet in front of me. Noidy. Noidy? Yeah, you said it right. Does not use triggers, He's, Louis. He doesn't not. use triggers, Louis. No, no triggers, Louis. That's, that's Louis, Louis. On uh, the Courts of Chaos album, they were programmed, but yeah. they weren't triggered. They're actually <laughs> sampled drums from Randy's kit that he programmed them, and they're actual everything that he put on that album he could play live. Yeah, but they're still they're fake, still they're still fake drums. Fake drums on that <laughs> al- on that album. That's the I only know that, that actually I was going to ask about that album. You got keyboards on there, which is unique because did you ever consider getting a keyboard player? No, because no. Randy played the drums and keyboards at the same time. Yeah, we did, and he still key- does. Yeah, yeah. But you can't do it live. You can't have. I mean, yeah, I, he does. Yeah, he does it live. He plays live. Yeah, man. What do you mean? Like he drums and plays keyboards live? I, yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> no way. Yeah, yeah way. Man. Yeah, way. As a matter of fact. I need to look at my Facebook and see. I've got photos, uh, actual video of him playing drums and keyboards in our studio. Oh, I, I, think, I think there might be some YouTube videos from our show with him in Athens, Greece. Yeah, yeah. Athens, Greece. Up the hammer. Yep. You know what I'm going to ask because you cover the, the one song. You don't have any covers on your album except for DOA by Blood Rock. What was the it's motivation? Cool. That? That's. I mean, it's a fantastic song. Other than that, did you yeah, have any it's, it's the only song all of us can agree on. <laughs> Really? Well, other, what, what were the other choices where you're like, I don't want to, where one person's like, I don't want to do that? What could have been on a Manila Road album? Oh, my God. Oh, we, oh, the list was great. Yeah, I remember Randy kept on throwing out sweet songs. <laughs> we were like, like oh. sweet? You don't like sweet? I'd love to redo it. I love sweet. I just didn't want to do one of their songs. <laughs> you know that, like, the sweet on uh, Ballroom Blitz is not the same sweet that does, like, their more metal stuff. Like, they were a heavy band. Oh, yeah, they were. It was just uh, the Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin wrote all the the pop singles, and then on the B side. What, uh, what about Love Is Like Oxygen? No, well, I'm not talking. I'm talking about like Set Me Free. I mean, that was like. <laughs> That's the only song you guys could agree on to cover. You know, we did a lot of stuff live back in the old days. We covered Jimi Hendrix songs and Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, and hell, we even did 21st Century Schizoid Band. By you did, oh, that's a, oh, wow. And you, do you guys nail every, I mean, that's a tough song to play. Do you guys get yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I did that when I had the Circus Maximus guys together, and, uh, they were fantastic. Yeah, we actually did everything up or not. We we didn't want to profane the King Crimson moniker or, you know, Robert Fripp because it's just such great stuff. And see, there you go again. Uh, that song itself off of the In the Court of the Crimson King album by King Crimson, I think, 21st Century Schedule Band is so close to being a metal song, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, to me, that basically progressive heavy metal. Uh, you know, I, I actually wondered why metal bands didn't incorporate saxophone more. I know it's not a very metal instrument, but it, it could have sounded cool. I, I think the reason that they don't is because of Nick Turner. 
going blah, 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 through so many Hawkman albums. <laughs> well, I mean, I, again, I mean, I'm, I'm hardcore on, on Hawkman. I was going to ask about Circus Maximus. You, earlier, I read another interview of yours. You said Circus Maximus does not fit in with Manila Road sound. It's more progressive rock. You, you really, you still don't think that fits in with the Manila Road sound? Well, I think it was a lot more progressive than what uh, Manila Road has really ever tried to be. And a little bit more towards the uh, mainstream accessible, at least for the time and day, uh, the day and age that that album was recorded. Well, it has a handful of ballads on it. I think all of it has a progressive edge to it. I mean, I don't see how Manila Road could not be thrown into it, along with a heavy band as, as a progressive band. I just thought, I just thought Circus was maybe, uh, like I said, during the day that we recorded that album, it, it seemed like a more mainstream type approach in a lot of ways than what Manila Road was. It was a little bit more lighthearted, you know, part of the time, a little bit lighter than what Manila Road was Wait, going you, for. You guys, were singing about, you guys were singing about John Wayne Gacy on it. How's that lighthearted? No, it wasn't Gacy. It was Ed Gein, actually. Oh, Gein, I'm sorry. My bad. Um, that's still, no, though. That's all right. But, uh, no, I, no, I agree. Our, 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 our topics, I didn't, I wasn't talking about our topics as much as I was our music, you know, at that point. Because definitely our topics were still pretty schizoid, <laughs> as they've always been. Yeah, our topics have ranged anything from adventure fantasy, uh, sci-fi, all the way to, you know, just bloody, gory horror. And uh, and then every once in a while, some sort of philosophically moral-based bullshit. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the Blessed uh, Curse. And that's about what uh, how people will not uh, adapt their views based on what they discover. Is that, I mean, is that, am I getting it right? Yeah, you're getting it exactly right, actually. Uh, there's just so much that, you know, it, it was a little bit of a personal statement, which I don't always make with our music. I tend to try and make our music a little bit more towards the entertainment side than I do the, the real serious side. <laughs> but, but, you know, I tell you what, after 40 years, sometimes some of your uh, personal views just sort of seep in there every once in a while. And, and Blessed Curse is one of those moments where I felt like, you know, I think all of us felt like telling the rest of the world, hey, you idiots, wake up. You know, it's not 3,000 years ago. Start thinking like you've got technology instead of like you're in the old days, you know, when, you know, you'd still believe that the the world's flat, <laughs> or that man wasn't meant to fly because he wasn't born with wings, you know, whatever. You know, there's a lot of things that I, I, I don't really like to preach uh, philosophy or, or politics or anything to anybody, but uh, there's some things that I feel pretty sternly about, and every once in a while I put them in my music, and Blessed Curse happens to be one of those moments. Yeah, but you also put a lot of history in it, like the, I mean... Voyager album has the uh, Vikings. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, that's a that's a historical fiction. That's what you'd have to call that. That's pure fiction. That's there's nothing because uh, well, no, it's not pure fiction. It's historical fiction. It's it's a fictional story based off of real stuff. I was wondering because in one of the songs, the Vikings discover the Skraelings. I don't know if a lot of our listeners know what Skraelings are. The original American Indians, is that... That is correct, yes. You were, you were basing the characters off stuff that really happened? Uh, yeah, actually I did, because like Henricus, uh, the guy that gets blood-eagled, he's actually uh, a bishop that was sent by the Catholic Church to uh, Camp Hop, which was the uh, Viking outpost in Newfoundland that Leif Erikson started, and uh, they sent him out there, and he was never seen again. <laughs> we don't know what happened to him, so that's where the fiction comes in. You know, I had to make up what happened. A lot of it was based off of historical truth, and then a lot of it was, you know, fictionalized as a sort of a posthumous, uh, hey, maybe maybe this is what could have happened, or maybe some of this did happen. Yeah, that's what I'd call historical fiction, where where if you take like an album like Gates of Fire, the Out of the Ashes stuff that we did about Troy and Helium and uh, Rome and all that stuff was um, directly derived off of the writings of uh, Virgil and uh, not Homer, although some of it, you know, coincides because it's the same story. But uh, we went for the Virgil thing because it was, uh, he was more of a Roman poet and actually uh, told it from, told the story from more of a, a realistic sense. And although it was really hard to decipher, there's 12 books in the Aeneid and I had to read them all. And, 
So you actually read you read it prior to writing the lyrics out, so you had like a good absolutely, absolutely. I always do my research. I was an anthropology major originally at oh, my cool. university, and uh, I changed directions and got an MBA instead. What's uh, your new eventually. career? Uh, my new career uh, is basically just being a musician. <laughs> but uh, no, the anthropology, uh, I was totally into history and anthropology, archaeology. And I did a lot of studying on that. And all those uh, years of being educated that way taught me how to research stuff. And so I, I do a, a pretty fair amount of research before I sit down and write anywhere, and especially if it's dealing with, you know, historical fact or anything like that. And of course, when it's, you know, going, uh, doing our own interpretation of somebody else's literary design, say like a Poe story or whatever, then obviously I read the story, you know, over and over too to get a good drift of it so that I know which, which way I want to go because I don't like to plagiarize, but at the same time, I don't mind, uh, taking a really good story and making a music adaptation of that story, you know, um, especially for stories that, Nobody's ever done a music adaptation to. Speaking of music adaptations, you ad- you adapted Defender, <laughs> and you know I love the joke at the end. For for our listeners, Defender is the second track off their off the Manila Road's Metal LP. It sounds like it's like a like a punk rock song almost because it's like short and fast. It and, is. And the joke at the end, it's it's like they're defending a planet, like it's a fantasy song, and then it's about the video game. Yeah, it's like yeah, play me again, uh, another quarter will do. You know. <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, we used to play that game a lot, you know, the Defender thing in the arcades when we were young. And it was one of those things where uh, I was probably stoned again. And I was thinking about about what it would be like to be the little guy inside the ship, depending on the planet. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually the the point of the song is that the whole song is from the point of view of the guy that's in in the game. And it's sort of like Tron, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, I've got another question. The Mark of the Beast was originally supposed to be called Dream of Eschaton. Um, yeah. He recorded in 81, and then later it came out in 2002 as Mark of the Beast. Jim Fitzpatrick, who did Thin Lizzy album art, he did the cover. Was that something he did before? And you just, like, commissioned the painting for the cover? Or was that something you just actually had him do as a project for that album? Well, actually, I don't have an answer for you because uh, Jim was a friend of Dennis Bergeron at, um, uh, well, it's Rocketdrome now, but Monster Records back then. And he's the one that uh, commissioned Jim to, to do that artwork. I don't know if it was something that was already pre-done that he licensed from him or if it was something that uh, he actually drew for the Manila Road you know, Mark and Beast thing, but I thought it was totally apropos, and I love Jim Fitzpatrick's artwork, but, uh, yeah, uh, after that contract was over, um, the artwork uh, license was over as well. Uh, and that's we why you guys it. reissued it with a different title, a different cover, is that correct? That, that and uh, the record label High Railer over in uh, Germany, High Roller had the idea of putting it out the way that pretty much it was originally meant to be put out as the Dream Special instead of the Mark of the Beast because it wasn't really us that changed it and called it Mark of the Beast. It was Monster Records that did. And I think they did that because as the demo had sort of uh, circulated through the metal community, I think people had started referring to it as the, the Mark of the Beast demo or something like that. I have the, the Mark of the Beast version. I don't have the Dream of Eschaton version. It's, it's a, again, another great record. It's more in your psychedelic heavy rock vein than the the epic metal vein but i would de- i would definitely suggest listening to the dreams of Eschaton version because it's the best sounding version that's out there it sounds so much better than the old stuff the mark of the beast uh oh, you the production the yeah and it's uh it's done extremely well by uh patrick engel and uh our drummer noy i believe had something to do with it too but uh Really well done. It, it sounds marvelous compared to the old stuff. It really does. The the one question I had was, at the time, in the early 80s, there weren't very many American metal bands. They had like that corporate rock kind of stuff like Journey and Foreigner and R.L. Speedwagon. Did you ever cross paths like Anvil or Manowar or like Twisted Sister in their early days in the, in the, when you were first touring? Or No, we didn't. Uh, the bands that we were probably, uh, you know, we didn't do a whole, a whole hell of a lot of touring back in the the 70s and early 80s what touring we did was primarily uh around the uh three or four state area here around kansas you know we did kansas oklahoma 
Colorado, Missouri, maybe Nebraska. We did play with Ted Nugent, got to meet with him back in the day, and uh, a band called Crocus we played with, uh, Striper we played with, and caused a riot between Christians and bikers, which were on our side, and Christians on Striper's side. And was it really like that? Because I, 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 yeah, I, oh yeah, yeah. When we sang the song uh, "Cage of Mirrors," all of the Christians they heard the word Lucifer in there, and they went off. Next thing you know, there's a lot of bikers beating the shit out of Christians. Wow. <laughs> That's sort of like the old Roman days, you know, it's cool. It's interesting to me because whenever I hear about stuff like that, like, I don't know if you're aware, but Tom Araya from Slayer is a practicing Catholic. So Slayer could sing all the blasphemous, you know, anti-God lyrics they want, but he's just going to take it in stride. That's why it's surprising to me when I hear that kind of stuff, that just because they heard the word Lucifer, that that would immediately set them off. Yeah, well, you're here in the middle of the Bible Belt if you're in Wichita. I mean, you can't be Satanistic and not be Christian. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> You have to be a Christian in order to be a Satanist. So uh, <laughs> it's one of those dichotomies that just doesn't. Yeah, matter. they don't understand. It don't make sense, Buford. You can't have Satan without Christianity or vice versa, is that what you're saying? Right. Exactly. Well, more, yeah. I mean, it's all part of the same religion and. and cultural mythos you know i'm not religious so i mean t- satan to me is like a horror movie thing it's just like a band because they sing about satan it's more just for fun you know what i mean the one of the songs that i found interesting was on spiral castle throne of lies it has sort of like a new metal feel were you experimenting in that style <laughs> just sort of something that came out you know it's an old song too because yeah, uh, um, when I, I just when I hear it, it's got that, and it, the guitar work seems the classic middle of the road, but then the chorus. That song, that's that song was probably originally written about ninety five, ninety six, maybe. No, he's he's mistaken on that. That was one we wrote for the uh, for that album. Actually, he was thinking of the, about half of the material on the Spiral Castle album. Yeah, was written back in 95, 96, but that wasn't one of the songs. That was one of the newer ones from that time, but like uh, the Spiral Castle song was actually a song from like 95. And uh, Merchants of Death was actually a song called Holy War back in 95. And so there are some songs. I, I can understand why he was thinking that. That was a strange album because that was but you know, about half the album was material that I had written back in 95, jamming around with Harvey Patrick and Randy Fox, and it finally just got to the point where we had the chance to record that stuff when I was working with uh, Mark Anderson and Scott Peters. A lot of the music on the Spiral Castle album was actually older music written in the mid-90s when people thought we really were inactive when we weren't. It's just we couldn't find a label deal and we weren't touring because we didn't have any label support. We just didn't have anything going at the time, so we made babies. We just, uh, yeah, we made, we made babies, raised families, uh, played golf, had regular jobs, and played as often as we could here locally until something big finally happened for us, which it did in 2000. With Atlantis Rising? Yeah, uh, yeah Atlantis Rising uh, actually started out to be just a solo project of mine that Brian and I were working on. Uh, it turned into a Manila Road album later after we were invited to play in Germany at the um, Bangerhead Festival that we did in 2000. And that was what relit everybody's fire. All of a sudden we had labels after us again, and there was this big resurgence, and uh, our Crystallogic album finally made it to the status of classic. Everybody was buying. The reissue. So yeah, that was sort of the the big change for us was in 2000 when we finally had a chance to get over to Europe and tour a little bit and find out how popular we were over there. And uh, eventually we finally ended up with enough contacts that uh, we started making uh, tours over there fairly regularly and uh, made it all the way to the point that nowadays we've got a really great tour manager, but we're still doing it ourselves. He's one of our own from here in Kansas. And He's been a good friend of ours for many years, and we're all pretty uh, pretty dedicated to each other, and we have just a good family atmosphere. I mean, even our, our merchandise stuff is run by people that are inside the, the inner circle. You know, uh, the guy that runs our merchandise and our website is uh, my second engineer in my studio, and uh, we're a pretty tight-knit family when it comes to that, and there's a lot of proof to that, even with the older members, because we're still friends with Josh and, and Corey. And Rick Fisher, Randy Fox, and of course, that's pretty obvious since we've been playing shows every once in a while with Randy or Rick, and 
doing projects with him. Randy's now the drummer for the Hellwell group, so... That's that's you and Randy Fox, right? Yeah, me and Randy Fox and Ishii Hellwell. Hellwell does art, is that correct? No, he, he's an author. Author, he, that's right, there you go, okay. Yeah, he writes. As a matter of fact, he's got a couple of short stories in the Swords of Steel uh, books. Uh, the real, the real master, the song on Crystal Logic, was written by him uh, way back when, and uh, <clears throat> that song or that story is uh, in the first Swords of Steel uh, volume, and then he's got another adventure fantasy story in the second Swords of Steel. And I believe there's a third one coming out, and he's got another story in it, too. How do you feel about these um, metal documentaries coming out, like with Thor and Anvil and Pentagram? Uh, do, do you have any opinions on that? With a, with someone yeah, yeah we, just, we, we decided to file, and file, file in with the rest of them, and we're trying to make one now. <laughs> Are you looking for a director? Well, I'm, you know, yeah, we've, we've got a guy that actually came to us that seems to be pretty energetic, and... I'm all about people having grand ideas and trying to make their dreams come true. So, uh, you know, we're giving this a shot and see see how it comes out. If it turns out like shit, we'll find somebody else to do another one. <laughs> so, so, so we can anticipate in the in the couple of years a Manila Road movie. I would hope so. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're after here. And uh, <laughs> so, which, which, uh, Kind of like the Anvil documentary or the the Pentagram one, where they kind of they follow you around on tour, but they also tell your story. And is, is that the understanding? Yeah, it's going to be a little bit of that. Hopefully, it's not going to be like the Pentagram because uh, well, Bobby well, I, don't, I don't think any, I don't think any of us are quite that strung out. So, <laughs> well, well, he's doing better now, but it, yeah, it won't it won't be quite as uh, enticing to some. I don't think as far as. You know, I don't know, man. We get pretty wild. We do get pretty wild. But, <laughs> uh, probably what will stick out more than anything is sharks' really bad jokes. You know? <laughs> I think your I think your jokes are pretty good. I like them. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good girl. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Stroke me. You go. <laughs> well, I think I already did. I mean, I, I think your your uh, guitar playing is fantastic, and I said that it's it, a lot of it's the arrangements that make the songs flow so well. Whether it's and and what's really cool is that. You know, you've got one song that's got like a 12 string guitar, and then a song that's just pure thrash. You know, I mean, and people don't. I mean, yeah, someone asks what, what Manila Road album should I get first. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> what are you into? Yeah, that's just showing all my alter personalities that I have. <laughs> right. Do, do you have any final words for the listeners? Absolutely. Um, I think the main thing that I always want to say to everybody is thank you so, so very much for your support. The undying fan base that we have is just incredibly cool. Oh, you always... have Fenris, Fenris from Dark Throne. The... Yeah, I love that guy. I love that guy. That's, he's amazing. He's amazing. And what's really cool is that even his music has become a lot more artistic over the last few years. And he's getting very, very well popular in the politics over there in, in his homeland. So he's 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 like running for office and shit. So it's, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, yeah, I think he's actually on his uh, like, city council. Or yeah, something. like like trying to be a mayor or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I could not imagine that man getting. I love it. Can you imagine that? that I'd love it. It's great shit, man. But I I just like to thank all of our fans for all their support and let them know that we really do care about them a lot. And uh, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing. And uh, we thank you for giving us a job to to and a career in music to pursue because uh, there's nothing better than being out there on the road playing for our fans, man. They just are incredibly cool to be with and party with and play music with. And it's what I'm looking forward to next year. Next year's Manila Road's 40th anniversary, and we're going to be touring all over the place. So watch out, world. Better fasten your seatbelts and uh, watch out for your, your younger sister because we're coming. <laughs> are you guys going to come to Detroit? That's where I'm calling you from, Detroit. I would hope so. I, I know, uh, I'm pretty sure Detroit's one of the cities that uh, our manager has targeted. He's in the middle of putting together all of our tour stuff right now. He's actually... Uh, we uh, played Detroit a couple years ago. Yeah, we did play Detroit a couple years ago. And, uh, what venue did you I'm play? Pre- Do you remember? Uh, you played so damn many of them that you'll probably... Shit, man. It was a little place that... It, it was a bitch to load because everything was upstairs. It was an upstairs bar. Oh, you're probably talking about Corktown Tavern then. Uh, what was it, King? Corktown Tavern. Uh, that's that may sound that, that, that sounds, sounds sort of similar. sort of right. 
man, there's too many shows. <laughs> I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah, it was kind of like in an abandoned buildings and shit where it was real close. Down, it was... And there were zombies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's I mean, that, that's going to be Detroit. It, no, what, be I, like... what, I, what I really appreciate uh, more about Detroit is, um, is how thriving it is now. Um, you guys are really kicking some ass in Detroit, and, and um, it's, it's really cool to see the economic boom going on in there. Right is now. Detroit where they had the big empty, uh, empty hotel? Yeah. Uh... You got not sure exactly which one you're talking about. I mean, Detroit's, Detroit's getting there. I mean, we're trying. Yeah. Yeah, and the parts that I've seen, you know, that, that were pretty run-down areas, they were really trying to clean up and and get stuff uh, on the up and up. But it's... Keep going, man. It's, look, it's looking good, Detroit. Sounds of Sounds our shop. Our shop. Our shop. Our shop.